The Final Legend of Tamisis by Carl G. Demi could see that her colleagues were getting impatient. Where the hell was Sefi? A lot of people swerved their own leaving dues, but as it was Sefi who had actually organised this walk, it did seem a bit unusual. After making one last attempt to phone and taking another quick glance around, she decided to tell the guide to start anyway. Sefi could always phone or meet them in the pub at the end. The guide began by clearly announcing the inn's location, telling them about matters to do with conduct and route, and, most importantly, reminding them that it was All Hallows' Eve, the Christian echo of the great Celtic festival of Samhain. He then embarked on a description of pre-Christian London and the offerings that Britain's original inhabitants used to make to the river. At every stop, Demi looked around anxiously. Her workmates, many of whom had initially expressed scepticism at the idea, seemed to be having a fine time. They were standing now just to the northwest of London Bridge, and the guide appeared to be summing up. So, now you know about the boat full of drowned Jews that haunts this stretch of the river. The Victorian ghosts who were exported to Arizona along with Rennie's London Bridge. And, he gestured towards Southwark Cathedral, the famously mean Mr Overy. He raised his voice a notch and continued. You've learned that golden castration devices were found under an accountancy to firm's offices, that votive offerings and human sacrifice have been practised along the Thames for at least the last 3,000 years, and that life was once, quite literally, cheaper on the Surrey shore. You've heard tales of queen rats, legendary cats and ghostly polar bears. But now it is time to reveal to you the final legend of old Father Thames. He paused for a while. A few people sparked cigarettes, others grinned. This last part of his performance had been gloriously hammy. Glancing around the crowd, the guide started almost at a whisper. Everyone drew closer. The latest incarnation of the legend of the L-boat is quite recent, but it is a tale as old as time, dating right back to the first agricultural communities where mammoths roamed the Thames Valley and wolves patrolled the Strand. Poe knew about it and made use of it in the Mask of the Red Death. Villagers across all of Britain whisper in dread of the devil's hunt and the wicked men who fall in with it. Others warn of parallel fairy worlds wherein a man may stagger and never re-emerge if he touches so much as a drop of drink or a crumb of food while he is there. Even Denny was half listening now, despite her recurring thoughts of Sefi. She was cursing the fact that she hadn't acted made some sort of move or declaration. As a senior employee, she knew the dangers of romantic entanglements with younger staff. But with Sefi's temporary contract up, surely it wouldn't have hurt. Now what really hurt was the prospect of having no Sefi in her life, never seeing that face, that body, the way of walking that haunted Demi's dreams and drove her imagination. The guide took a swig of water and continued. The modern
variant, and maybe some of you have heard it, arose during the financial crash of 2008. In the run-up to Christmas, there were rumours that a boat party was being planned. The greatest Christmas bash ever. Despite the sky being dark with falling bankers, despite the empty order books and the collapse of much-loved high street chains, despite the exposure of widespread incompetence and even corruption in the finance industry, there were some people who were still determined to party on. Soon the most ruthless and ambitious of them began to inveigle their way onto the guest list for the boat party. The greatest bullies, bullshitters and blackmailers from the square mile and beyond. From the worlds of banking, advertising, property and fund management. All of them got their hands on tickets. In one office, workers planted drugs on colleagues to elbow them out of position and thus out of contention for the party. No trick was too low and no price too high for what promised to be the shindig of the century. There was one exception to the catalogue of villains who were invited. A woman who was desired by a particularly ruthless investor. He double-crossed his own best man to get tickets for her and one of her friends. We might call this friend a double agent. She knew and supported the investor's agenda, and even lied to the woman's lover, whose name she promised her would be on the door too. The day of the party arrived. Everyone boarded, the woman among them, and the boat left its moorings and headed off down the river. Every corner of the craft was sumptuously decorated. Great nicks of cocaine were placed discreetly about. A masked uniform staff were serving reeds of booze. On each of the several decks, different music was playing, all of it festive. At first, our noble heroine was intrigued and made some effort to mingle. After only a short while, though, she became so repulsed by the gross displays on offer that she passed out in a corner. When, much later, she came round, she realised something the other revellers had not. That time was passing. That hours and days had come and gone aboard the boat. That no one was catching the last tube home. And that everyone was going to spend eternity at the office party from hell. The revellers carried on drinking though their livers were dead. They ate only to vomit immediately and still be hungry. They snorted beak through a bleeding single nostril. Others fucked in the toilets though their genitalia was raw with repetition. And all the while, fairy tale of New York and last Christmas blared from the speakers. A few people in the crowd shuddered at this. Others started joking about secretaries with their asses on photocopiers from now till doomsday accompanied by a perpetual soundtrack of Slade, Wizard, Cliff and Shaky, adding to their eternal damnation. The guide went on. Luckily for our heroine, she had an ally, one who truly loved her, but despite what she had been told, whose name had never been on the door at all. Her lover returned again and again, pleading for her release, until at last a deal was struck. Having consumed only two beers and a sausage roll while on board, the woman would spend three months on the ship every year. Her punishment would start on All Hallows' Eve, the festival of Sarween, and end at the old pre-spring rite of Imbolc in February. For the rest of the year, she would temporarily lead a normal life in the city, living under the sun. However, 
These conditions would only apply if, come February, there was someone who loved her, waiting for her to re-emerge. The guide paused and looked about him. And where did this sailboat pick up its punters, you may well ask? he inquired, reaching a crescendo. Why, just there along the waterfront, before Cannon Street Bridge. That's where the devil's boat picks up its willing hands, and where every Hallow's Eve the virtuous Temmie screamed, cutting him off. There, walking sedately up the gangplank of a recently moored boat, was Persephone, her dark hair swinging behind her. She was wearing the dark Ben Sherman coat that stopped just above the knee, and dark boots that curved slightly outwards from her trim legs, creating an oval gap when she stood still, as she did now, appearing to catch something on the air. Seffy! cried Demi. But after one quick turn of the head, Persephone was on board, and the boat pulled away. Demi ran to the embankment wall and started to scale it. A couple of her quicker-thinking colleagues held her fast as they looked across the empty river. They hadn't a clue what she was shouting at or trying to die for, though afterwards a couple of them did recall hearing music drifting across the water. The guide coughed gently. A Halloween, he said. Some folk claim they can actually see the hellboat and hear the strains of the Ronette's winter wonderland echoing over the Thames.